Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily, is Ireland immune from the rise of the far right? That I'm going to name. I'm going to be making a very big announcement on Tuesday, November 15th, at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida. The Sweden Democrats, who have neo-Nazi roots, have now made it into mainstream politics. The new Italian Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni, has addressed Parliament for the first time. Her government is credited with being the most right-wing in the country's Republican history. Donald Trump is tipped to announce his third presidential run. And the success of the far right in Italy, Sweden, Hungary and Poland has shaken the EU both at the level of the European Council and the European Commission. Brussels has been asleep at the wheel. But it can be a complex debate, especially as these parties are gaining prominence through the ballot box. When you label a politician as far-right or fascist, you are also labeling the people who voted for her or him. And when you do, you play into the very hands of that politician. Up to now, Ireland has withstood the far-right. But are we being complacent? I'm Kevin Doyle, and today on the Indo-Daily, I speak to John O'Brennan, Professor of European Politics at Manute University, and Larry Donnelly, Law Lecturer at the University of Galway, about the rise of the far right in Europe and the situation here in Ireland. John O'Brennan, we often talk about the rise of the far right in Europe. But what do we mean by the far right or even the right of politics in the modern era or its modern incarnation? Well, I think there is a distinction to be made, Kevin, between the extreme right and um, sometimes called the radical right and parties that are right of centre. One important test, I think, is whether a party is accepting of the institutions of the state or whether they want to overturn those institutions entirely. And I think the true definition of an extreme right party is one that just cannot tolerate checks and balances amongst the institutions of the state. That's a really important distinction. I prefer the term nativist uh, because there you're talking about ultra-nationalist parties and their emphasis is on ethnicity, uh, defining who counts within the country or within the nation. Whereas if you're talking about the populist right, they tend to be anti-elites. So they base their kind of philosophy on morals rather than on ethnicity. But what you're describing there is is someone that has a very uncomfortable relationship with the state and the arms of state. But what we're seeing in places like Italy and Sweden 
is being run through democracies. I think there's a lot of sensationalism that attaches to this. It is true, Georgia Maloney is the first, not just female prime minister of Italy, but the first far-right leader in Europe since 1945. So we can't just dismiss that as nothing. But on the other hand, if you look at the Brothers of Italy as a party, um, what they've done really is to replace the Lega, which will be part of the new coalition. But the Brothers of Italy have kind of displaced the Lega. It's not that the vote for the far right has gone up that dramatically in Italy. And we should also remember that Europe has had a a far-right presence in parliaments now, stretching back many decades. The biggest winner of election night is Jimmy Orkesson, the leader of the anti-immigration Sweden Democrats party. For the first time, they're set to form a coalition with the moderates, after the centre-right party agreed to cooperate with what was once considered a pariah of Swedish politics. And over time, Um, when we have elections like the Swedish one in September or the Italian election that followed, we tend to get shrieks of, oh my God, we're heading back to the dark days of the 1930s. But if you actually look at the way these parties have behaved in coalition, there is no doubt that they have managed to send the center of gravity of politics in Europe further to the right over the last quarter century But we haven't seen outright fascism of the kind that we saw in the 1930s. We haven't seen any system tip it towards that extreme. Members of the European Parliament are heavily criticizing Hungary's new anti-LGBTI legislation. The law, originally aimed at protecting children from pedophilia, was amended, so it also prohibits portraying homosexuality to underage people. What we're talking about in Sweden and Italy are perhaps more well-established countries that we consider in terms of ec- economy and politics and all the rest of it. But this type of thing has been well-established in places like Hungary. And I think the EU has struggled with that a little bit. For example, Viktor Orban's party being part of the European People's Party, in other words, sitting alongside our own Fine Gael. And that's a really difficult place for, for a party like Fine Gael to sit, is it not? You're absolutely right. The European People's Party bears enormous responsibility for allowing an authoritarian regime to develop in Hungary. And not only that, it's a regime that relies almost entirely in terms of investment from European subvention. Hungary gets about 4% of its GDP directly in the form of EU grant aid. And there's a lot of evidence of corruption around Orban's network of authority. So both at the level of the European Council and the European Commission, Brussels has been asleep at the wheel. And there should have been a much earlier intervention in the case of both Hungary and after 2015 Poland, because these were countries that were now being led by authoritarian parties that were very deliberately trampling on established norms and checks and balances in politics. The European Union has recommended suspending 7.5 billion euros in funds to Hungary over corruption allegations. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban is accused of mismanaging EU funds and dismantling democratic institutions. 
there has been a belated effort by the EU to tackle the problem. So the EU, for example, hasn't yet delivered the European COVID recovery money to Hungary and Poland. These are huge sums of money in the case of Poland, about 30 billion case of Hungary, about six and a half, seven billion. But the commission has been holding out because it is trying to get those parties to change some of the things that they have um, radically altered over the last years, especially the position of the judiciary and the criminal justice system. Uh, it remains to be seen whether the commission is going to continue withholding. But you certainly have a point when you argued that the European Union has been part of the problem rather than the solution here over many years. I want to bring in Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at the University of Galway, and perhaps more important, Larry, Bostonian. Was Donald Trump far right? You know, the, the, the labels are the thing that I have a, a little bit of an issue with here. Uh, and I would have agreed with just about everything John said in his analysis. However, his labeling of, of, of Georgia Maloney as far right does give me pause. Now, one can be troubled by her roots and indeed the roots of her party, but we have come to, if you look at her rhetoric around in this campaign, and of course there is the possibility that she's a wolf in sheep's clothing, but if we look at the rhetoric she's used, I mean, they're pretty standard conservative talking points. She has conservative points of view, for instance, uh, on abortion, for instance, on the traditional family, for instance, uh, on curbing immigration. One can agree or disagree with those points of view as they come, but I do not think that they are inherently far right uh, on the political spectrum. I think there's a distinction to be drawn there. And one of the things that sort of frustrates me uh, in this debate is uh, the, I suppose, the move towards labeling uh, individuals who rise to power. And certainly, I think, as John points out, someone like Victor Orban, uh, I think he's more than earned the far right label at this stage. But there is a tendency to rush to labels. Uh, and anyone who says, hold on a second, um, all of a sudden becomes this sort of advocate for the far right or somebody who's asleep at the wheel. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the, what I'm much more interested in is an analysis, I suppose, both from within and without, as to why traditional center and center left parties uh, have very clearly uh, lost touch with a lot of the people who uh, once would have supported them. I mean, for instance, have they become cold houses for traditionalists? Have the, uh, I suppose, globalist free trade kind of ideals that they typically pursue, which well may have won them plaudits at one level, have they failed the people uh, on the ground? Uh, I'm more interested in that sort of analysis. When you label a politician as far right or fascist, the reality is you're not in a way just labeling her or him. You are also labeling the people who voted for her or him. And when you do, you play into the very hands of that politician in the sense that they can say to these people who are already aggrieved, who are already angry, they wouldn't have made the choice at the ballot that they did if they weren't already aggrieved and angry. They can say to them, look at what the elites say about you now. They say you're a fascist. They say you're far right. You're playing into their hands. So I think that's a mistaken route to get on. It gives me uh, cause for concern. And we saw this very much uh, with Donald Trump, you know, and, and again, uh, Donald Trump, I would I would have argued against those who said he was far right. I think uh, at this stage, uh, I moved my position on that. I think January 6th uh, played a very big role in that. I think especially as John defines far right, I think January 6th very much comports with that definition. Now it is up to Congress to confront 
this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. But certainly the very same factors that led to the rise of these people uh, in Europe, those are the very same factors that led to the rise of Donald Trump in the United States. John, do you want to respond to that? Very often um, when we talk about the far right, we kind of assume that there is this ever upward trajectory in Europe, that the far right is on the rise again. And I'm not so sure that that's the case. There are, as, as much as we can point to Italy and Sweden, we could also, for example, point to Denmark, where the Danish People's Party has lost a huge amount of support in recent years. In Germany, the alternative for Deutschland emerged during the Eurozone crisis, really made hay out of the migration uh, issue in 2015, but has lost ground substantially in recent times. Remember Golden Dawn in Greece, parties like that, which looked like they were going to become really important political actors and then faded over time. But it's very far from an even picture. And as Larry also rightly says about the Brothers of Italy, although the jury is out, we really won't know how they how they may be positioned within the far-right spectrum until we see actual decisions emerging from that government. But sure. it is true to say that Maloney's rhetoric has moderated over time in exactly the same way that Marine Le Pen's rhetoric moderated over time in France. And that's part of the politics of it. I, I don't want to go nativist, Larry, but you might bring us back to what you're seeing here in Ireland. We, we see a lot of stuff on social media that uh, arguments around far right, but we've never had a situation like we have in Italy, Sweden, where there's been any sort of a breakthrough by further to the right of centre parties uh, making any sort of breakthrough. So is there a is there room for them here? Uh, I mean, if you look at the, their failures, I would argue their abject failures at the, at the ballot box, uh, it's hard to see a route for them. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't be vigilant about the potential for them to rise? Uh, no, it doesn't, uh, especially when we have a lot of challenges in this country, which one would think would be amenable to somebody on the far right coming through. All we, all we have to do uh, is look at the housing shortage and the housing crisis as one potential angle there. Um, and again, one of the things I've argued in the past about why this hasn't come to pass is if you look at um, the far right, and again, I'm just distinguishing the far right from conservatism, the far right, one of the things that, you know, their linchpin has always been um, to, to play to racial hatred, to play to anti-immigrant immigrant sentiment. Um, the reality is because of this country's past, uh, I think that the people here are inherently resistant uh, to that line of thinking. Again, people, Irish people have emigrated all over the world and met a lot of resistance at first, met a lot of hostility and discrimination uh, and have done very well. So I think that that inherently makes us resistant. Does it make this country immune to it? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, but I think so. Again, I think it's a balance between uh, remaining vigilant on that front. But I think there are a lot of different realities that militate against um, the rise uh, of the far right in this country. The history of immigration is one big one. The electoral system, um, that certainly doesn't help candidates on the far right uh, who are trying to get involved. Uh, so there are a host of different reasons I think we need to be grateful for. 
The other thing I just would point out um, is that, you know, in terms of, of the rise of populism or populist parties, we know, now know Sinn Féin is the most popular political party uh, in Ireland. And to its credit, it never really has played uh, to uh, anti-immigrant or any of those sort of other sort of sentiments that are bubbling out there. There's no question they are bubbling out there. But there may be a tension at some stage because if you look at people, a lot of Sinn Féin's core vote, uh, and you look at their answers to polling on questions around direct provision and immigration more generally, um, they tend to skew uh, quite a bit to the right and be further to the right uh, of the centrist big beasts uh, in Irish politics. How that tension is going to play itself out when Sinn Féin is in government uh, is going to be very, very interesting to watch. Yeah, I think Sinn Féin would traditionally have been more towards a socialist party than um, than than that sort of thing. So is it a case, Larry, maybe that people, Irish voters in the polls kind of reflect this, they have somewhere to go if they're angry. Sinn Féin have never been in power. Um, the issues around housing, things like that. There is somewhere for angry people to go. Is that part of the reason maybe why some other parties haven't gained traction in the way that they have in, in European countries? Yeah, I, I think I think that's true. I think that's a big part of it. There's also uh, another issue that I think is to the fore here in the sense that one of the big ingredients that the, the far right was able to, has been able to take advantage of is economic displacement through the rise of technology and globalization. Uh, Ireland is kind of unique in the sense that, uh, you know, we've always had a small, relatively small manufacturing sector. And if anything, technology and globalization have been boons uh, to those sectors and have been boons more generally to the economy. So, uh, you know, that again also, I think, militates against it. But that tension within Sinn Féin will be fascinating to watch. But if the Twitter and Facebooks and Googles of this world, uh, Larry, have been good to our economy, they have also been good to those whose opinions may not get reported in the inverted commas mainstream or establishment media, haven't they? And that is where we see a lot of the angst and the extreme views taking hold, even here in Ireland. Yeah, there's no question that social media is, you know, a vehicle for uh, for those kind of messages. Groups around the world, I think, perhaps particularly in the United States, but also in places like Germany and elsewhere, use these, uh, you know, these sites to, uh, I suppose, expand their messages and expand uh, their audience and grow their memberships. Uh, so that's again going to be one of the tricky things: is uh, you know, what's what's legitimate to have on social media? Uh, how do those various mediums police? Uh, the content that's on there. Uh, and I suppose that's going to be an ongoing challenge. And one of the things that, that surfaces in that, Kevin, is uh, a real big distinction between, and again, these are mostly American-based uh, technology companies with social media sites, and a, a view in terms of what's acceptable to feature on those sites versus what's not acceptable. And there would be a very different perspective on that in the United States because of the First Amendment versus uh, what's acceptable here in Europe. So again, social media has been a blessing uh, in many respects, to the far right. And John, I know you're based in Bulgaria at the moment. What do you see there? And are we kind of versus what you're seeing? I suppose in in Eastern Europe versus what we see in Ireland is are we could we be complacent? Could it seep in here in the way that it has in many Eastern European countries? Well, uh, <clears throat> I think you know often we're guilty about thinking about Eastern Europe as being a place apart. Actually, it isn't in respect of the far right. 
the most popular and entrenched far-right parties in Europe are actually based in wealthy and successful northern and western Europe. I'm thinking of the national rally in France, which has been around for decades. Uh, even in countries like Switzerland, the Swiss People's Party, again, is a very big player in politics. And we've mentioned Sweden and Denmark and elsewhere. Uh, in Eastern Europe, there, there is certainly a far-right presence, but we've also seen defeats in recent times for um, far-right parties in Slovenia. In Bulgaria, we had a far-right party called Ataka, which has virtually disappeared. We now have another one that just got 10% of the vote in the recent election. But they're a long, long way from really having traction at the ballot box. Um, but just to complete something that Larry uh, said, um, Kevin, about um, social media, I think a lot of people are terrified at the prospect of Elon Musk taking over Twitter. And the reason for that is he seems to be saying, well, anything goes where free speech is concerned. He's threatening to allow Donald Trump back onto Twitter. People will have observed what he's had to say about Ukraine and Russia in recent times, the allegation that he was almost taking instructions from Russia, which hasn't been proved. But there's enough evidence in the public domain to suggest that Twitter might become a, a much bigger problem for democracy and for checks and balances when, if and when Musk takes over the company. My thanks to John O'Brennan and Larry Donnelly. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Mary Carroll with sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips were from BBC, Channel 4, CNN, France 24 and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. And you can find more of our award-winning journalism at independent.ie.